This series that we've been doing is uh, entitled Gospel Driven Relationships. And I felt like tonight it would be actually maybe helpful to actually talk about the gospel that drives relationships. Or another way to think about this is to even ask the question, what is driving you towards relationships or away from relationships? But particularly toward relationships, what is driving you? We're going to look at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul talks about how now the love of Christ compels him. But it hasn't always been that way, which of course then raises the issue of what compels you? What compels me? What drives us? Loneliness, lust, control. You know, there are all kinds of reasons, a need to be needed, all kinds of reasons we can be driven to relationships. But what I would contend that eventually some sort of cost-benefit analysis will come into play either for you or the people you're in relationship with and then you will find out then you will find out whether those relationships or whether there's a big enough thing driving you to relationships even when they are uncomfortable and might even cost you pain or even just hassle uh, I heard somebody say recently, you know, um, the problem with marriage for some is that marriage is a mirror and not everybody wants a mirror. And I think most good relationships are that way, right? And I think we don't need to pretend about that. I think it's actually helpful to, to face the reality that we're scared in so many ways and there are lots of ways that that plays itself out. Um, but the gospel speaks into this and has something to say um, even as, as Mikey was, was praying, even some of the songs that we were singing, I was thinking about the only security that can actually allow us to move towards other people uh, is the security we find in the gospel. And I think that's what the scriptures teach and it's what we're going to look at tonight. What compels us? If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be gripped by the reality of the gospel that has so gripped the Apostle Paul. Send your spirit um, to that end and for your glory. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, I, I really think, you know, Paul sets up a contrast here. I used to regard you and people from a worldly point of view. Now, Christ's love compels us. He set up this contrast, and it raises the question for us. What compels us in relationships? As I said, eventually, all of your relationships will be subjected to a cost-benefit analysis because relationships get difficult. And relationships get difficult, then we begin to weigh the cost and weigh, is this worth it? Particularly if we're pursuing relationships, as most of us do, in a consumer culture kind of way. And that really is what squeezes off. If you want to think about what does it mean to regard people from a worldly point of view, I think it is to regard them for what they can give you, what you can get from them. And, and everything in our world squeezes us into that pattern. It's our whole basic approach to life unless God breaks in and changes our orientation. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He thought everything was going fine as he was on the road down to Damascus to actually persecute Christians because he thought they were blasphemers, people who were um, really um, bringing the name of God and dragging it around in the mud by worshiping this guy called Jesus. And he thought that was just an abomination. And then he was struck down, his eyes were blinded, and eventually he began to understand the mercy and grace of God, and it changed everything. Now, he doesn't talk about all of that story here, but that's what's behind this. There was a time in his life when everything changed, and it didn't just give him a get-out-of-hell-free get free card. I think a lot of people, when they think about, why do I need to believe the gospel, they tend to think, well, it's, it's, I need to be sure of where I'll go when I'll die. And we basically relegate the gospel to sort of an importance that really is only true like after we die. But in fact, the gospel has everything to say about how we live now. And that's what I love about this passage. Paul is saying the gospel has changed how he regards people, how he invests himself, um, even what he feels called to be about. He's called, he says, to this ministry of reconciliation. I love that he calls himself an ambassador because you know one thing that's true of ambassadors? They don't make up the message. They actually have to be faithful with the message that they're called to deliver. So Paul recognizes that the gospel, the good news that he's called to proclaim is really God making his appeal through Paul and through all of us who know about the good news of Jesus, imploring people to be reconciled to God. Because without being reconciled to God, not only is your future not a bright one, eventually, but even the here and now, there is really no way to break out of this self-centered way of living unless you have something so secure that you don't have to work for and that you can't lose when you screw up. That's the only security that can actually allow you to move towards other people and to serve them rather than needing to be served by them. And that's what I wanna talk about tonight. So you, you may ask yourself, you know, again, like in this consumer culture we live in, 
We tend to pursue relationships, whether you realize it or not, for what they can give us, for the benefit that they can bring us. And as I said, when relationships get difficult, when the rubber hits the road, when you realize this person isn't everything you've always wanted, or when you realize that they're more needy and difficult, won't bow to your every whim, at some point you'll be driven to, is this really worth it? You may ask yourself, is this relationship really worth what it costs? Is the benefit of not being lonely, getting sex whenever I want it, really worth the cost in terms of hassle, in terms of the kind of exposure of my weakness and selfishness that this relationship is bringing? I think that'll happen at some point, maybe soon, maybe 10 years into your marriage, if that is what happens in your life you'll probably reach a point where you really wonder whether the cost is really worth the benefit. Pursuing relationships for what they bring us is not a big enough purpose to sustain your relationships through the kind of difficulties life will bring. I often bring this point out whenever I do a wedding. I'll often say, you know, um, we come together here and you're about to say these vows either out of faith or naivete. Because no day, no matter how much you dress up, no matter how much the pomp and circumstance is, no matter how beautiful or powerful the songs are, right? No matter how many of your friends are there to witness, no day can raise your feelings to such a pitch that will sustain you for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years of being married to a sinner. The only thing that can sustain you is if in making those vows, you hear the Lord himself make vows to you to never leave you or forsake you for richer or poorer in sickness and health. And here's the thing, his vows extend beyond death. They're not broken. They're not till death do us part. His vows that he makes to us, all his people, who he marries himself to, his vows were actually sealed by death, and therefore death can't undo them. That is the only security. And to the degree that you're drawing from and resting in that love, you will be able to love others. There's a great verse in 1 John that says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. You have to know the love of God and rely on the love God has for you, not on your love for God. And, and one of the things that, that, that you find out when you read in there in 1 John is that we are more like the moon than the sun. We don't generate love, we reflect it. Just as the, the, the moon does not generate any light, it reflects it to the degree that we're basking in the beauty of Christ's love. To that degree, we can love others. That's the heart of the Christian message. And pursuing relationships for what they get you, not only is it short-sighted, it also is destructive in the here and now. Because I'm sure there are people in this room who when I talk about cost-benefit analysis can say, yep, I've been on the other side of that. I've been on the other side of that. I've tasted the pain that that brings. And I think one of the things that we do is we're, we, we, we basically, in that kind of fear and insecurity, we take to auditioning people to see if they really can be trusted. 
And then at some point, you begin to wonder, maybe people are auditioning me. And if, once you begin to think about that, then you realize I have got to find a more secure basis for relationships. Because so many of our relationships are about auditioning people to see if they really can be trusted. And here's the secret I have to tell you, they can't, right? I think so many people are so afraid of moving towards relationships because they think that they need to make the perfect choice and they've recognized that they really don't know everything and they really can't be absolutely, absolutely sure. And it just paralyzes you unless you know that God is committed to giving you his love for other people. That's the way this thing is supposed to work. And so I, I think one of the great things that we fear, if we think about it, is at some point the people who matter to me most, my parents, my friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, at some point they may decide the relationship with me is not worth the cost. That's hard, right? But I don't want to lie to you and, and, and paint, paint a picture that's not reality. Brokenness is in the world. Self, you know, Martin Luther said, he, just, he defined sin this way, the inward curvature of the soul. Now imagine what it's like to be in relationship with people who are basically have souls that are curved inward. That's, that's what's going on with all of us. And so many of us, I think, are convinced or trying to convince others that either we're indispensable or we're trying to convince ourselves that the best way to live is to not actually need anyone. Because that's one way to avoid the pain, right? Is just to not actually need anybody. Or to be so good at convincing people they have to have you that they would never abandon you, right? But every relationship eventually will let you down. David Brooks, New York Times columnist, says that for so many people in our society, particularly people of your generation, life is a continual aptitude test. And, and you kind of sense that you're like one misstep away from things falling apart. And imagine how that has affected you, whether you've thought about it or not, that is in the cultural air that we breathe. And realize this, it's not just the way we relate to others, uh, it's often the way we relate to God. See, most religious people are desperately trying to convince God that they're worth loving, or even sadder, they've given up belief that they could convince God that they're worth loving. And it's why so many Christians have so little joy, because that just wears you out. No one likes being auditioned. That's why dating is such a drag sometimes. No one wants to be in a relationship with the other person constantly evaluating whether being in a relationship with you is worth it. But listen, there's so much of our world that's like that. In 1975, Ann Landers, and you don't know who Ann Landers was, back when people actually read newspapers, they had people who had columns in newspapers, and Ann Landers had one of the most popular columns. People would write, for her, write to her about relationship advice. She was kind of like the, the person. Her column ran in almost every newspaper in America. In 1975, she ran a survey in her newspaper column asking parents, if you had to do it all over again, would you have children? 50,000 people responded. 70% said no. Right? And if you don't think that those children picked up on that, that's, 
Sobering, isn't it? Now you might ask why? I think one of the reasons is because throughout the 60s and 70s, children were seen as a way to self-actualize, as the way to get everything out of life. But if that's why you had children, yeah, you probably didn't work out the way you hoped it would. You know, um, in, the, in, in survey after survey in the 1960s, having children was listed as the number one priority for gaining happiness. What's the number one way to gain happiness? Survey after survey in the 60s said gaining children. By the 1980s, it had dropped to number four, right behind having the right car, right? Pursuing relationships because you think they will bring the happiness and joy that you were made for will always disappoint. I, I remember, you know I, you know, I think I already quoted Adele and like what she talked about her new record and how she was gonna tell her son basically why I destroyed your life by leaving your father because I just, you know, wasn't anything was really bad, but eventually I thought this relationship was, you know, gonna be bad, so I might as well end it here and now. And then she's trying to explain and hopefully her son will understand one day. Um, I, I thought about this movie in 1979, you probably haven't watched it. Uh, you know, to me, like some of the saddest movies are the movies where they think the message is a positive, heroic one, and you're just like, oh, no, that's so empty, actually. And this is one of those movies, Kramer versus Kramer. Meryl Streep, she's amazing in this movie, like she always is in movies. But it's basically a movie about a mother who decides she needs to leave her husband and her eight-year-old boy to find fulfillment. And so at the very end of the movie, she writes to her little boy this, I've gone away because I must find some interesting things to do for myself in the world. Everybody has to, and so do I. Being your mommy was one thing, but there are other things. Now, that was seen, that movie was seen as a liberating kind of statement. It wasn't, it wasn't seen, but it's the most empty, sad thing, isn't it? Right? The fact is, relationships are dangerous and uncertain. One of the most haunting songs I know uh, is by Patty Griffin, the song Christina, that's about the daughter of Jackie Kennedy Onassis. At one point, this girl was the richest woman in the world, but had numerous broken, terrible relationships, drug addiction, and finally died uh, of a drug addiction. Um, but, you know, Patty Griffin has this haunting line about love. She says this, Dear Christina, if you had the real thing, how could you tell? Liars can say it all just as well. Ooh. Relationships in this world are fragile, particularly when they're pursued for what they can get us. You'll never be the kind of friend you want or find the kind of friends you need if everyone is pursuing relationships like consumers, right? That's the mess we're in. And it's so far removed from the biblical understanding of what relationships are to be about. So the question is, how can the Christian community be an actual countercultural force in this world to demonstrate there is another way to live? How can we show the kingdom of God changes everything? only if our relationships are driven by something bigger than what benefits us. 
and only if we're loved by someone who loves me for more than what I can bring to the table. And that's what the gospel is all about. Now the sad thing is, I think a lot of people are basically, you know, taught a gospel that says basically, you know, you need to accept Jesus into your heart and do God a favor. He's kind of this pathetic weakling who's really just kind of knocking on your heart. Won't you just give him a try? Um, that's not at all the picture of the God of the Bible. We don't do him a favor. Um, he's actually not needy. He loves us because he loves us, not because he's lonely. He's in perfect relationship, but the nature of perfection, Jonathan Edwards says, is to spill out of its banks and not be able to be contained. And perfect love wants to involve others in that relationship. Christianity proclaims that God loved us more than we could ever hope or imagine, not because we complete him or because he needs us or because we'll be so valuable on his team, but because he purposed to love us in Christ from before the foundation of the world, even while we were still sinners. If you're gonna memorize a Bible verse, Romans 5, 8 is a good one. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Take that to the bank, right? He loves us, the Bible says, not because of what we did, not just so that you can be his little worker bee, this is one of the main things I want you to understand as we're talking about relationships, is that Jesus marries himself to us, not just because he wants us to work for him, but first to bask in his love. When we're dead in our sins, God who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. It is by grace you've been saved. That's Ephesians chapter two. And this is actually good news that brings security because it proclaims that the love of Christ is so different from any other relationship. And Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Um, he says, you know, it's possible that for a good man, somebody might be willing to die. Maybe you know examples of people that have given their life for other people, but nobody does that for their enemies. And that's when verse eight comes but God demonstrates his love. It's so like beyond the other ways that we understand love. Um, as a matter of fact, in 1 John it says, and this is love, not that we loved him, like our love for him doesn't even get to count in part of the definition. That's how far our love is from what love actually is. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us, right? That's what the Bible has to say. The only love you'll ever find that loves you, not because of what you can offer, is the love that loved you while you were still a sinner, while you were still his enemy. And I know that we taste a bit of this in the very best relationships, but God never has and never will base his love for us on what we do or don't do. That's what grace is all about. And that's the way Paul describes it here in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. He says, Christ's love compels us. Why? Because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. What Christ did changes everything. Paul says that in Christ's death, we all died because his death counts as our death the death we deserved, 
Uh, I sometimes quote that quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, but I now know that it's actually a hymn from Horatius Bonar. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's the heart of Christianity. His death for us, his life for us. And that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says, Paul goes on to say that Christ died, notice, so that, this is verse 15, those who live should no longer live for themselves. Now, I think somebody, maybe it was Mikey in your prayer, you mentioned Christ setting us free. That's John 8. The truth, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. This is the same thing. The truth will set you free is the same thing as saying you'll no longer live for yourselves because Christ has set you free from that. That inward curvature of the soul is bondage. That it seems to try to tell you that it, this is life, this is freedom, but it's not, it's bondage because you weren't made for, for trying to, to get all that you can get out of life on your own. You were made to be in a relationship with God that would be so secure that you wouldn't have to get all of your joy, all of your meaning out of your relationships in this life. And if you don't have that relationship with God, it puts weight that cannot be borne by what this life has to offer. This life cannot give you all that you were made for. And if you don't have a relationship with God through Christ, I implore you, as Paul does, be reconciled to God. Because otherwise, otherwise, this life will break under the pressure because it was never made to give you everything. This is why St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. This is the reality, right? So Paul goes on and says, Christ died so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Christ had a bigger goal in mind when he died for you and for me than just getting you out of hell, right? The gospel is bigger than just what happens when you die. It's to change how you live as well. Um, Tim Keller has a great little, a little uh, booklet. Um, I know some folks have read it and found it very helpful. Um, where he talks about, you know, that the Christianity is not supposed to make you think less about yourself. In other words, to think about yourself as less than you are, but to make you think about yourself less. In other words, unless this issue of what does God think about me is fully settled, we're always gonna be worried about it. It's always gonna be coming up. It's always gonna be a factor in why we do what we do. But when that issue has been settled by the grace of God and the security that comes from the love of God of Jesus living in our place and dying in our place, right? And he, his, his death was perfect, his life was perfect. Therefore, if you have that, you have nothing to worry about. If that's what's been credited to your account. If that has set you free, then you don't need to be obsessed all the time with what does God think about me? And it enables you to turn your sights and to start to love the things that God loves and to have your heart broken over the things that breaks his heart. He didn't just die so that we could go to heaven when we die. He died so that we would live completely differently than how we've ever lived before. And that's what Paul says. I used to regard people this way, 
but Christ's love compels me. Jesus died so that you would no longer live for yourself. And rather than being driven by what I can get, we need to understand that Christians are now to be driven by what has taken hold of them. Christianity changes your basis for life, you see. When the love of Christ has grabbed you, it changes the way you relate to others. Something is compelling you. Something is driving you. Have you ever seen that movie, Chariots of Fire? Remember, it's a great story. It's about two Olympic runners. Um, One is a guy, Eric Liddell, who's a Christian, and he's wrestling with whether or not he can run on a Sunday because his faith is very important to him, and he's, he's going to go to, a, to, to be a missionary in China, which he actually did in real life. Um, and, and, and then it's contrasted with this other guy, Harold Abrams, who's also a runner. And at one point in the movie, Harold Abrams answers the question of why does he run? Why, why do you run the 100-yard dash? He says, because I have 60 seconds in which to justify my existence. Eric Little, later in the movie, is asked, why does he run? He says this, God has made me for China, but he's also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. So what compels you? Why do you run? Why do you do what you do? When I started in RUF, um, there was a guy, Bebo Elkin, who was one of the um, kind of head honchos, and he used to say, basically, my job is to go around and ask campus ministers, why do you do what you do? And and honestly, that's one of the most important questions you can ask yourself as well. Why do you do what you do? Does the love of Christ compel you, right? And the Bible makes this point over and over and over again. What God has done changes the way we live. This is why the Bible, listen to this, the Bible never gives bare commands. The Bible never just tells us what to do. It always anchors what it tells us to do, either in God's character or in something God has done. It's everywhere. It's the next chapter in Ephesians. Ephesians is three chapters of this is what God has done, what we call the indicative. This is what he's done, leading then to chapter four, verse one, and the last three chapters, the imperative. This then is how you should live. You see it as well in Romans 12:1. this verse. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or some translations say logical, only reasonable act of worship. So the Bible's always doing that. When you're shrinking back or fearing, loving the way God has called you to love, immerse yourself in what he has done for you. And actually use your own failure to love as a way to repent and say, Lord, I'm so bad at loving. Thank you that you are not like me, and help me, give me your love for this person. Now, I'm not saying it's easy, and I'm not saying you don't need wisdom, particularly when we're thinking about people that have sinned against you in grievous ways, right? So don't be unwise. Talk with staff, we can help you navigate that. But the general way to think about this is the love of Christ compels us, and we need more than just a superficial understanding of that if it's gonna really drive us. The gospel is the thing that gives us power to live differently because it's the only thing that gives us real humility. The thing the gospel says is that you deserve the death that Jesus died on the cross. And you know how we know that? Because Jesus prayed to his father, if there be any other way, 
then let this cup pass from me. Don't make me go to the cross. That means that you and I deserve death and hell. If that doesn't humble you, Lord have mercy, right? Because that's reality. That's reality. Jesus did not suffer more than he needed to. But also, Jesus did go to the cross, and that gives security like you never could have believed. And when the gospel changes you, here's the last thing I wanna say. When the gospel changes you, it actually is restoring in you what it means to be truly human, what mankind was made to live for in the first place. One of the ways you can see how we were made to live is to see the kind of life that Jesus lived. Jesus is, actually Paul calls him the second Adam. He is the one who obeys everywhere where God's people had disobeyed. When he's wandering in the desert you know, for 40 days, he obeys everywhere Israel disobeyed in their 40 years wandering in the desert. And quotes Deuteronomy every time to, under, to let us know he understands that he is basically facing the same tests and will obey in our place, and we will get credit for that, right? In the life that Jesus lived, he shows us what a well-lived human life looks like. And you know what he said? He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He says things like, no one will find their life unless they lose it, unless he or she falls to the ground as a kernel of wheat and dies. But paradoxically, living this way is true freedom. As Jesus said in John 8, the truth will set you free. Believing that you need to pursue relationships for what you can get out of them will always put you in bondage. But the gospel comes to set us free to be who we were meant to be and free to live and love as we were meant to love. And nothing can set you free to live and love as risky and as scary as that is, like the security that comes from knowing that the love of God does not come to you because you earned it and will never leave you because you fail to live up to it. Because you will. Tim Keller talks about this way of doing relationships and why it's so different than any other. He says this, moralism often uses the procuring of love as the way to earn our salvation and convince ourselves that we are worthy persons. That often creates what is called codependency, a sort of self-salvation through needing people or needing people to need you. In other words, saving yourself by saving others. On the other hand, much relativism or liberalism reduces love to a negotiated partnership for mutual benefit. You only relate as long as it's not costing you anything. So the choice without the gospel is to selfishly use others or to selfishly let yourself be used by others. But in Christ, we see a man who unconditionally sacrificed for us out of love for us, not need for us to love him. And when we get both the emotional humility and the emotional wealth, the emotional humility, who do I think I am? He had to die for me. I can't flatter myself. And the emotional wealth, he loves me like that? We're moved to humbly serve others, but not out of inappropriate need. We do sacrifice and commit, but not out of a need to convince ourselves or others that we're acceptable. Because we've already been We've already been loved 
in spite of how unacceptable we are. That actually allows you to confront people and love people, not just be used by people. We don't need to use others in this way if true, truly secure in God's love. And that brings us to the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5. This is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. Because here's the, here's the thing. For a lot of people, they think that what they get from Jesus is forgiveness. But I'm here to tell you tonight that that's only half of what you get. And if that's all you think you get in the gospel is forgiveness for everything bad you've done and a new fresh opportunity to try to impress God, well, that is all kinds of bondage. Because you know that you're not going to be able to live the kind of life you were made to live or called to live. Now, what we get, as it says in this verse, is the righteousness of God. Do you understand that because of what Christ did, that you are more beautiful in God's sight than if Adam had never sinned? Because if Adam had never sinned, all of his progeny would have not sinned. But we would not have the righteousness of God that we have because Christ the God-man lived and died in our place. Uh, theologians call this the doctrine of the fortunate fall. It's an odd name, but it's the idea that we get more in Christ than we lost when Adam and Eve fell. We get a security that is so beyond anything you've ever experienced. And it needs to be the kind of thing that we thank God for and praise God for until it warms our heart and melts our fear and enables us to go out in the world and say, don't believe your lies anymore, that my worth is based on how well I love or on how well I am loved. It's based on Jesus died in my place and calls me to love others and invite them to be reconciled to him. The only love that will never let us go. That's the gospel that should drive our relationships. That's the love that can compel us to live differently. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing a closing hymn.